Hello everyone. So I haven't made a video in a while, which is probably not obvious because um, sometimes I make a few videos when I'm feeling like it and then just schedule them weekly so I can kind of seem a little um, consistent and give that gift of consistency to you. But I thought I would just jump in. As usual, I haven't really prepared thoughts and I'm just going to try to go through um, Edith Stein's essential writings and kind of see what I've marked and then see what I can kind of say about them. So the topic of this video is the theology of Edith Stein. Um, so let's just go ahead and jump into it. And actually, I'll leave a link in the description below for an amazing conversation on um, that I and uh, another philosopher has, uh, we have a Twitter space that we do every couple of weeks. And so we invited someone who was doing their dissertation on Edith Stein. And it was a great conversation. So probably much better than this. Um, anyway, so I would, you know, you should check that out if you want to. Um, oh, and the other philosopher is Chris Satur, who also has a YouTube channel, so I'll put his YouTube um, um, URL in the description so you can follow him. Um, he mainly does uh, philosophy. He's doing his dissertation on um, German idealism and Schelling. So, uh, and Schelling is someone I want to get into soon, but haven't too much. I only read one of his texts and not sure how much I understood it. All right, so Edith Stein is such an interesting person because she is a philosopher saint. She's actually a saint. And um, she just has an interesting trajectory. So she was born in 1891 and she was born into a Jewish family, but she kind of gave up that faith and was agnostic or um, maybe atheist. I don't really know what exactly she identified as, um, but she was kind of just uh, taking a bit of a, a detour from her faith. And she entered university and studied psychology and philosophy, specifically phenomenology. And uh, she was uh, working and studying under Edmund Husserl and uh, helping him edit his ideas. And her, her dissertation, so she has some philosophical works, uh, one of which I have read uh, on the problem of empathy is her dissertation, uh, which is really interesting, so I'll probably have another video about that when I give it maybe another read. Um, and then, you know, after her philosophical studies, uh, her work in academia, in which she was kind of taking a departure from faith, which is not to, I don't actually know if she um, sort of departed from her faith before or during her university time, but 
it's actually not too rare that, that that happens because a lot of times when people, when students go into college, they're kind of bombarded with ideas and um, it kind of sometimes upsets their sort of religious worldview they enter the university and college in. Um, one very famous conversation surrounding this phenomenon um, is um, between Flannery O'Connor and a college student named Alfred Korn. You can probably look that up. And he asks her, you know, what to kind of do about these doubts that are coming into his mind. And she gives him some very um, sort of solid advice, telling him basically not to worry too much, that um, you know doubts are part of a religious journey, and um, you don't necessarily have to make a decision to give up your faith just because you have the doubts. Um, so, um, so she. Uh, then after university and after writing some of her philosophical works, um, she converted to Catholicism. She read Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle, which is, um, she's a, uh, Teresa of Avila is a Spanish mystic and Carmelite nun. And her interior castle is basically talking about um, the structure of the soul and how it is structured into sort of seven layers. And uh, you can just go deeper and deeper to a core of basically an annihilation of the self and union with God. So there's this idea of sort of surrendering the self and doing whatever God wants you to do and thinking about um, suffering as not something to avoid, which most human beings try to avoid suffering, but something to readily accept and even um, desire because that brings you closer and one with God. And so um, Edith Stein was very influenced by this book and this uh, coupled with an experience she had of, um, of someone in suffering being sort of courageous and composed she herself became a Carmelite nun and has a series of theological works. And just one comment on comparing her theology to her philosophy, they do sometimes overlap, but I would say that her theology is very much written for the non-scholar. Um, and it reiterates some very traditional, unsurprising views of Christianity, of Catholicism. Um, she does have some interesting sort of interpretations and, and twists to her theology, but, uh, you know, you really have to look for them. So I think that any sort of believer in the Christian faith would be very enlightened by her works and find them very comforting and empowering. Um, but for an academic and for a scholar who kind of expects the intellectual and aesthetic level, the kind of critical thinking and maybe deconstruction, um, 
in philosophy and contemporary philosophy and her philosophic works are they they're satisfying in in that sense if that's what you know as a scholar as an academic you're wanting um but it seems kind of worlds away in that sense in the intellectual and aesthetic sense um from her theology so that's just something surprising because you know i I think I was kind of personally hoping that, okay, here's an academic, here's someone who's gone through the university, she's a philosopher, her theology is going to be uh, theoretical, but it's really not. So, so that said, um, if I could maybe summarize her theology before going into the book, and this is a, this book is actually a really great, I don't know if you can kind of see it. Um, this Essential Writings is really a good book to get into her works with because it quotes from not more her theological works than her philosophical works, but I think it touches on every single um, text that she has. And she has written, I think there are maybe about 10 or 12 volumes out on her writings. And uh, yeah, I think that she has, aside from a dissertation, she has two works that are primarily philosophical and then the rest are theological. So I would say that she emphasizes sort of the self-surrender um, and the mystery of God. She kind of says, we love God even though we don't completely understand God, but there is this sort of role of faith that leads the believer's life and you find sort of joy on this path of kind of releasing your ego and your desires and your will and you're just kind of ready for whatever God gives you and there's this sort of very, I would say, traditional or typical understanding of evil and suffering in the world that there is sin in the world, there is um, a battle between good and evil, and uh, as believers, we are sort of following Christ in order to take on some of that of that burden until you know good wins over evil. She also has the idea that. Um, that various paths of following Christ, um, you know, can be beneficial, but you don't necessarily have to be a Carmelite nun and live within the walls of, you know, the monastery in order to reach that, you know, the deepest layer of spirituality and faith and love and union with God. Um, in order to get there, you can be out in the world. And she very much felt for herself, and she didn't enter the, um, you know, the convent um, until she was, I think, in her late 30s, early 40s. 
So she had kind of lived a life out in the world with her family and as a college student and as an academic and scholar, she knew Heidegger and other philosophers during her time, etc. And then, you know, in her adulthood, she, she decided to take that step and was very committed to it to the end. So she very much felt as if there needs to be very strong Christians and religious people out of all kinds, out into the world to try to reach everyone. And she also kind of had this almost pluralistic, I mean, she uses the rhetoric, the rhetoric really in a very committed way um, to, you know, concerning Christianity. But her theology creates space for, let's say, like her mother's Judaism, uh, for those who are seeking truth in any sort of costume of identity. Because she says at some point that as long as someone is sincerely and purely seeking the truth, probably um, involving reflection and contemplation and being of a pure heart and trying to, um, you know, go beyond the self in community and helping others, etc. Um, they, even if they don't know they're seeking God, they are seeking God and God understands that. So that is kind of interesting. Um, the other part, aside from her theology though, just making a caveat because I forgot this, um, and her philosophy is her commentary on women, which will also be another video, but basically she was uh, an essentialist feminist, meaning that she found, uh, she, she believed in the clear differences between men and women. Um, but she also thought that gender was more on a personality continuum and uh, she felt that particular innate sort of tendencies of women were valued and needed in the world. Likewise, innate tendencies are, in men are valued and needed in the world. Um, so she did kind of stick to rhetoric of that binary. But she also said, so in addition to that, that obviously both men and women are needed because of the unique sort of contribution that each can make. She felt very strongly that in her sort of feminism and inclusivity that women need to be able to exercise their full potential and and sort of exist and extend into their full humanity in order to contribute to the fullest so um so you know so it's really it's really interesting i think um you know and my background is women's studies and religion so i very much like her interdisciplinary kind of approach. I just wish she would have had some more academic works on theology, but her theology seems very um, practical and 
which is, you know, also, also great. Um, I'm sure many people would much prefer that as well. So, all right, so let's go ahead and get into this. And let's see what we want to talk about first. Okay, so uh, I have two quotes. These quotes are from uh, a book called Self-Portrait in Letters. And, uh, you know, some of her volumes are like, for instance, on the problem of empathy is a work, you know, a singular work of its own. But some of the volumes are collections of like her letters and essays and different things like that. All right, so she says, um, immediately before and for a good while after my conversion, I was of the opinion that to lead a religious life meant one had to give up all that was secular and to live totally immersed in thoughts of the divine. But gradually I realized that something else is asked of us in this world and that even in the contemplative life, one may not sever the connection with the world. I even believe that the deeper one is drawn into God, the more one must go out of oneself. And she really did live this. I mean, up into her final moments, um, she was murdered in a concentration camp in the 40s. So she died in 1942. And she really kind of went out sort of courageously, um, you know, helping other people, helping, especially looking after, you know, children who were sort of not attended to in the concentration camp, um, you know, helping others and trying to find out where, you know, she could make a connection and extend the love of God and the love of Christ to others. So, and that's a big part of, of why she was uh, given the status of saint. I think that the sort of the trajectory to sainthood um, you have to have a few elements, right? To be a martyr, to have shown, you know, great works of charity while you were alive, and then um, to have sort of a following who prays for your help, and uh, and with that, uh, the sort of the confirmation of miracles. So. Um, I don't know so much about that third part, but I understand how the first two steps, you know, how they were, how Edith Stein's life was interpreted in that way. So I, I just think this is, uh, yeah, this is a really interesting quote. It's not that, you know, it's kind of the idea that, you know, when Jesus was, kind of going through his mission, you know, he would talk to everyone. He would talk to people who were despised and criticized and, you know, looked down upon, looked on as dirty or immoral or, you know, not dignified, upstanding people. And he would, you know, have dinner with them. He would have conversations with them. He would invite them into his fold. 
which I think is uh, is always a very sort of inspiring fact about um, about the stories of Jesus and what I think you know some Christians in Edith Stein is drawing from because you have to think about the judgment of people today and so who today would you know Edith Stein or Jesus um, invite to their home and be seen in public with and care about and talk to um, you know on the level of respect and equal footing almost in a sense you know who are the the people the the young men and the young women and the uh, maybe the, you know, the people of different gender identities or the people of different political identities or people who have made mistakes and been canceled for different reasons. You know, who are the people that we judge and look down upon because they're not making the choices that we would make? Those are the people that Eva Stein would want to commune with and Jesus did commune with. So I think it's it's something good to think about. Okay, so also from Self-Portrait in Letters, she says, My life begins anew each morning and ends every evening. And this uh, quote has the context of her psycho psychological kind of background, I think. She gives, she gives some good comforting advice to sort of the person in the human predicament of frustration and busyness and exhaustion. So, and just, you know, the general sort of, I guess, scariness of, of human life. So she says, my life begins anew each morning and ends every evening. I have neither plans nor prospects beyond it. So she let's she releases the day after it goes on you know after it happens for example to plan ahead could obviously be a part of one's daily duties but it must never turn into a worry about the coming day which i think you know is very good for you know affirmations right i release the day so i can sleep <laughs> and try again tomorrow all right, so this next quote that I'm going to read comes from, or a couple of quotes, comes from The Hidden Life. So here she's talking about, um, you know, sort of a call to go outside of the church, outside of your, you know, religious circle to commune and help others. So, and here she's also talking directly about her reflection on Teresa of Avila. So she asks about her. What gave this religious, who had been living prayerfully in a monastery cell for decades, the passionate desire to do something for the church and the keen eye for the needs and demands of her time? This is something also she says that the church should evolve with the times so that it can be the most helpful, which I think is really uh, interesting because a lot of times 
Um, I think people criticize religious traditions and uh, various churches and rightly so sometimes for being kind of stuck in the times, for not evolving, for condemning sort of rather, people would argue, innocuous paths, um, trajectories that society and humanity is going, you know, not being as inclusive. Um, and so that's really Edith Stein in that way, you know, is, is very compassionate, I think, and realistic. It was precisely that she lived in prayer and allowed herself to be drawn ever more deeply by the Lord into the depths of her interior castle until she reached that obscure room where he could say to her now that now it was time that she consider as her own what belonged to him and that he would take care of what was hers. So I interpret this as... Um, as a religious person, not rigidly holding on to really anything, but being secure in one's sort of faith and connection to God, regardless of, again, sorry, oh, it's just dry eyes, um, who we're communing with. Because a lot of, I think, sometimes maybe, people who are... And, and actually, I'm not even talking about religious people right now. Anyone can be sort of pious and, you know, greater than thou, right? When we're judging others and seeing others as, as beneath us or something like that. And, uh, you know, she's trying to say, don't feel like you are contaminating yourself. You're getting dirty. You're going to be judged. You shouldn't be... Or, you know, yeah, you shouldn't be guilty, feel guilty, because, because what you are trying to, what will you lose if you try to preserve that sort of self-perfection, you know, and what will you gain if you open up and make a human connection of compassion and kindness? So, you know, even though this is all from, or most of this is from her, theological works and she is a Carmelite nun and a Catholic um, and also a Jew at least in her in her history and I don't know would she call herself also Jewish Jewish Christian I'm not sure I don't really think so but it is a part of who she is um, well maybe at the end of her life she was kind of forced, in a sense, to reconnect with her Jewish heritage, and I'm sure she embraced that as well. So there was an evolution, for sure, in her life. Um, okay, now I forgot what I was saying. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I think I was on a moralizing soapbox is what I was doing. Um, so we should just end it. Okay, so the next quote comes from The Hidden Life as well. So 
for she says for those blessed souls who have entered into the unity of life in god everything is one so as long as you are if you have entered into that space you don't have to be particular and sort of a religious hypochondriac about you know doing the wrong thing or doing the right thing because it's all one it's all one so everything is one rest and activity looking and acting silence and speaking listening and communicating surrender in loving acceptance and an outpouring of love in grateful songs of praise so there's not just you know you don't always have to be serious you don't always have to be um now, I don't know if she would say this, but it kind of reminds me of my own sort of wish for the religious or spiritual path. Really, the religious path is a spiritual path. Would be okay with this? Um, is the idea that nothing is prohibited. Because I think growing up, I grew up as a charismatic, evangelistic Protestant, and a lot of things were off limits, you know? So if you know, my mother, she did, find a box of oracle cards that actually a therapist I was going to had them and I thought they were really cute. And so I was like, I want pretty little cards. Um, she found them and she thought it was, you know, she, she was scared of it. She was threatened by it. It was a, like a bad presence, you know, or getting into the dark arts of, I don't know, whatever it was. But you know, I think that Christians can use, I mean, this wasn't like a, I mean, I don't know the religious orientation or non-religious orientation of the therapist that I went to for three weeks, because <laughs> that's because I was like, I can't afford this. <laughs> I'm like 24. Um, so anyway, or I don't know how old I was. A lot younger than I am now. Um, but I think that it's better to have a feeling of, of love toward various things because you can get a little bit neurotic, I think, in Christianity. And I think a lot of my OCD tendencies, like the seeds were planted in my early youth of Christianity, just because I think if you can always, if you always have to be on the verge of or the edge thinking frantically am I doing something wrong am I sinning and I don't even know it right or I can't even touch this or I can't look at it because it's you know I don't know if I'm gonna be saved or I don't know if God's gonna like it and it's like God's watching everything I do and judging everything did I just have a bad thought you know I mean I think you can go kind of crazy with that and so this is why I think that Edith Stein's theology is kind of on the calming, therapeutic side. Um, because she's like, don't worry. You know, it's okay. You don't always have to be speaking. You don't always have to be silent. You don't always have to be, you know, proper. You can be, what does she say? feeling an outpouring of love and grateful songs and praise. So, um, so I like these tendencies, you know, this tendency in her theology. 
Oh, okay. So she says, as long as we are still on the way and the farther away from the goal, the more intensely, we are still subject to temporal laws and are instructed to actualize ourselves. So her theology is quite grounded in the human experience. You know, I like this idea of, and it would fit along with her philosophy on empathy because she talks about, and I think there is, um, there is a bit of her dissertation in this. Um, she talks about understanding ourselves and uh, to a deeper extent by being in an, an empathic relationship with other people who are different. We, you know, may not have the complete capacity to really understand and we will never experience the kind of ex primordial experience, the actual experience that, that they have experienced, but we can still learn from it and we can still know them to some extent. There's always gonna be a distance, but we kind of learn through that distance. And um, she also talks about having an empathic relationship to ourselves, which requires distance as well. All right, so we have about 30 more minutes, I think. All right, let's see how much we can get through. All right, so this is another, this is actually from one of her philosophical works. So you can kind of see how her theology then does sometimes enter into her philosophy. This is from Philosophy of Psychology, which I don't have. There are two books right now that are on Amazon for only in their used form for like $300. So because the company that publishes all of Edith Stein's works um, is working on new translations. So don't buy the ones for $300 unless you have that kind of cash. Good for you if you do. Um, at some point in 2022, they will be available for the people as I am, who can spend $20 on a book. So that sounds normal to me. All right, so this is sort of a long passage, but when I read it, I love it. It's kind of about letting go and resting in what is. So again, anti-neuroticism in religion. She says, there is a state of resting in God, of complete relaxation of all mental activity, in which you make no plans at all, reach no decision, much less take action, but rather leave everything that's future to the divine will, consigning yourself entirely to fate. This state might have befallen me after an experience that exceeded my power and that has completely consumed my mental life power and deprived me of all activeness. I love that confession. Compared to the cessation of activeness from the lack of life power, Resting in God is something completely new and unique. So it's not a, a sense of, of giving up in your exhaustion. It's using your exhaustion and your sort of helplessness to fuel an opening into a path that is productive where you have the faith that you will receive what you need to move forward and to make something of the moment that is outside of 
passivity and hopelessness. Um, she says, the former was dead silence. Now its place is taken by the feeling of being safe, of being exempted from all anxiety. She has a critique on Heidegger's anxiety that I love, which I will get to, hopefully. Um, and responsibility and duty to act. So kind of taking the pressure off of oneself if one is in that position. You know, not every piece of advice is for everyone at every moment, right? So it's helpful for, it's not like enabling, I don't think. <clears throat> so, and as I surrender myself to this feeling, new life begins to fill me up little by little and impel me without any voluntary exertion toward new activation. This reviving infusion appears as an emanation of a functionality and a power which is not my emanation and which becomes operative within me without my asking for it. The sole prerequisite for such a mental rebirth, I just love the way she's putting all of these sentences. I love her language here. Seems to be a certain receptivity, like the receptivity supporting the structure of the person. A structure exempted from the sensate mechanism. So it's it's letting oneself be receptive. I remember when I was on the journey of my faith and it felt like I was struggling so much to reach out to God or try to listen to God or try to get God to do what I wanted God to do. And for whatever reason, I was inspired to just maybe, I was inspired by my exhaustion. Um, I, was, I was sitting on the floor against the door of my new apartment that I had all by myself. And I just kind of gave up in the sense that Edith Stein is talking about. I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna listen. And if God doesn't have anything to say to me, then that's fine. I'm going to listen to God's silence. And it was, it was very cathartic. That's what I will say. And that's what I feel when she's talking here. And this is what I would like Edith Stein's theology to be completely. Um, you know, because I feel like she's integrating. I mean, it's still, it's kind of in that happy middle. It's not completely, you know, the sort of, scholarly mystery that you need to try to struggle to unpack and read five times but it's also I don't know it has a level of style and tone even in her personal confession that I find more compelling personally than some of her theology so that's just how dare I criticize um okay all right so i love that i i want to read it actually three times three more times um out loud but you know we won't okay so the next quote that i will read oh there's a lot here um is from is actually from one of her works of woman but it's not super directly let's see if i can summarize some of it 
Okay, so she's talking in this passage. It's titled, Able to Rest in God. So it kind of continues. It's a more, like, this is going into that, like, pure theological advice. Uh, the psychological advice as well. So she talks about the day. Just a day. She says, the soul is replenished by nature in so many ways that one thing always replaces another. And the soul is in constant agitation, often in tumult and uproar. So she really understands the human condition. She says, the duties and care of the day ahead crowd about us when we awake in the morning, if they have not already dispelled our night's rest. Now arises the uneasy question, how can all this be accommodated in one day? Agitated, we would like to run around and rush forth. But she says her own practice is that her morning is, de is dedicated to the Lord. Um, in sort of a great offering of reconciliation. So she has this sort of, you know, whatever she does, probably prayer, I don't know. Um, she's not super specific here, but she says, after quiet dialogue, I will go to that which I see as my next duty. I will still be joyful when I enter into my day's work after this morning's celebration. My soul will be empty of that which could assail and burden it. So then she talks about, so she has this kind of meditative morning time, which I think is good for many of us. And then she says, now begins the day's work. She happily goes into it. And she says that, you know, a lot of times we can't achieve everything that we want to. Um, and sometimes we can't achieve anything that we planned or wanted to. So she says, we must contend with our own fatigue, unforeseen interruptions, shortcomings of the children, diverse vexations, indignities, anxieties. Or perhaps we are, we are at work and we have to give and take with disagreeable supervisors and colleagues, unfulfilled demands, unjust reproaches, human meanness, and perhaps also distressed of the most distinct time. And after that, it's just noon. She says, and it's noon. We come home exhausted, shattered, and new vexations perhaps await us there. And she says, the soul would like another meditative time. Um, and so she says, we should try to take these moments. And she says, if duties prohibit a quiet hour in the middle of the day, then at least for a moment, seal oneself off inwardly against all other things and take refuge in the Lord. See, I think that this sort of advice can extend outside of religious rhetoric. I mean, it reminds me a lot of, you know, Zen Buddhist meditation time. I myself have started a morning routine. I think I've been doing it for, I don't know, a couple of months, a few months so far. I don't know, probably not, not that much, but maybe in the beginning of the summer. Um, and now we are almost ending the summer. We have like three-ish more weeks, four more weeks um, before I have to go back to school. But uh, so, you know, I, for a long time, for many years, had been interested and wanted to get into meditation. 
Um, I even spent a couple of weeks going to uh, this kind of like eight week long, so obviously I didn't finish it, um, sort of, I don't know, workshop in meditation at a Buddhist temple, which was very beautiful. Everyone was really nice. It was really cool. I don't know why I didn't finish it. Just busy, distracted, whatever. But even then, I just didn't know how to meditate and it never really stuck. I don't think this is the case for all people, but for me, I had to be in a situation where I desperately needed to meditate in order for me to commit to it and do it. And also, I use guided meditations, so that's how I do it. Um, I'm not sure if I could just meditate on my own without without a guided meditation. Maybe someday. But right now, there's a lot out there that really work and are great. And you know, you could just do it for five minutes, you could do it for 10 minutes, etc. Um, so my morning routine, if I can share, um, I get up every morning, I, for my chronic insomnia, I'm trying to get morning light, so I go outside, either I take a walk. Right now there's a family of wasps living, I think, um, behind some kind of door on my apartment balcony, so I'm not sure I can coexist with them, so I haven't been going out on my balcony as much. But before they were there, I would, you know, spend as much time in the morning as soon as I wake up to let my eyes get photons because there's a difference between being outside and seeing the light even if it's a cloudy day and being inside and looking through a window it's it's a difference of intensity is how i've heard it been explained and it is you do start to realize you know when you go outside even though you are i'm in front of windows right now if i go outside i'll probably start squinting because the light is that much brighter and there's no barrier between you. So I do a meditation. I do like 15 minutes of yoga. I also work out um, for a little bit. And I do, I have like this list of affirmations, mostly that I borrowed from Louise Hay, who was like the founder of Hay House, is the founder of Hay House, um, which has lo lots of books. I don't think it's super really like specifically religious. It's more like mindfulness and self-help and things like that, I don't know. Um, but she has really good affirmations, I think. Although I'm not sure I can agree completely with her philosophy, but it's another day. Um, and then I do chanting, Sanskrit chanting, and uh, I think that's it. That's what it is, and I cannot miss a day because if I miss a day, the day is not good. Well, I only I only missed a day once, and I was like, never again. <laughs> I I need it. It's a it's about survival. So so yeah, so I couldn't do meditation until it was about survival for my mental health and my physical health, I guess, as well. So. Kind of reminds me of that and i like that and this is actually from i don't know if i said this i think i did this is from her um book on women what is it specifically called essays on women essays on women okay so one of the collections i guess maybe and uh and i i love that she is kind of being compassionate you know she talks about 
people who have different lifestyles and duties and responsibilities than she does in the monastery. But I guess because she, you know, went through her teenagers or 20s or 30s out in the world, not being a Carmelite nun, you know, she, she lived that life, you know? So she's speaking also from, she is speaking from experience, not just her, just not her present experience, I guess. So, all right, let's see if we can do, okay. Um, let's see if we can do a couple more. We are closing in on close to the hour, 12 minutes to the hour. Okay, I'm not doing what I need to do. Okay, I'm still with you if you're on if you're listening on my podcast. I'm just I marked a page and I don't know why I marked the page. Oh, okay. Um I want to get more into, so basically I think I've shown that she has good advice for the human predicament in her theology. So her theology is practical. I think that the, the strand of, you know, the soul's annihilation and self-denial and obedience right here she says it is a mysterious act this is also from her essays from women it is a mysterious fact that obedience is efficacious against the powers of darkness so this idea of total submission i kind of understand and see benefit in but I also find it slightly problematic. So, um, I think this is really interesting. I'll read this quote before I get into that more because it kind of shows, it kind of defines or describes her understanding of God and the mystery of God and God's relationship to us. She says, and this is from Knowledge and Faith, God wishes to let himself be found by those who seek him. Hence, he wishes first to be sought. Because I think there's, you know, always the question, and at least there was in a young Christian mind, uh, why doesn't God just be more obvious about what he wants and tell us? And then there's always the response of, well, then you couldn't have faith. And I'm like... You still have to decide to do it if you, it's not like you're going to love everything you're supposed to do or that you know about God, like still just lay it out a little more clearly. But I think a part of theology for practitioners is trying to explain these things, right? So, okay, so we can see why natural revelation is not absolutely clear and unambiguous but it is rather an incentive to seek. Supernatural revelation answers the questions raised by natural revelation. Faith is, is already a finding and corresponds to God letting himself be found. 
not only, so God is a letting himself be found being. Not because it has hyphens, so kind of a Heideggerian colloquialism, I think, uh, or way of language. Not only in the sense that he has something said about himself through his word, but that through his word, he himself has himself be found. That just, I don't know, to me, it just sounds like a lot of work, like, why do you, why do you need that? Why do you have to have that? Why do I have to seek? Why can't I be sought? You know, or maybe I can't, I don't know. But I just, I don't know. Sometimes I don't love everything about Christian theology. Um, so she talks about the soul needing to be developed and us needing to reflect in our soul. So I'm going to skip the part about women and gender. Time is running out. Okay, so this is kind of the start of it. I think a lot of this is from the science of the cross. I know this is from Hidden Life, actually. Okay, so she says, we hear repeatedly that St. John of the Cross desired nothing for himself but to suffer and be despised. We want to know the reason for this love of suffering, which she agrees with the love of suffering. She just wasn't doesn't want it to get misconstrued. Um, which Teresa of Avila, you know, was sort of like, Think it was her having sort of the ecstatic sort of communion with God where like I think um, she experienced the stigmata so actually like the blood where the nails for Christ would have been embedded in Christ actually show up on people's hands on like the body of the contemplative I think. I know, it's been a while since I've read Teresa of Avila she says, the side of the world in which we live, the need and misery and an abyss of human malice again and again dampens jubilation over the victory of the light. The world is still deluged by mire, deluged by mire, but still, and still but a small flock has escaped from it to the highest mountain peaks. The battle between Christ and the Antichrist is not yet over. The followers of Christ have their place in this battle and their chief weapon is the cross. And she says, everyone who in the course of time has borne an onerous destiny in remembrance of the suffering Savior, or who has freely taken up works of expiation, has by doing so canceled some of the mighty load of human sin and has helped the Lord carry his burden. So what I find problematic about this kind of theology is that I feel like it in it justifies evil and suffering in the world. Um, and puts it in sort of this cosmic battle that... Not that it would be better to fall into despair. But... Can we change sort of evil that is not 
directly from human beings, but is from sort of a deterministic, fatalistic battle that's beyond us and that's supernatural. I mean, is it comforting? Religion is, is comforting. I mean, any explanation, rational explanation of suffering that will end one day is comforting. But I don't know if it's helpful to trying to actually change the world. But, I mean, who am I to speak? Edith Stein is a nun and a saint. So, she's probably doing more to help the world than I am. Okay, so, so many other good quotes. Um, just that kind of shows the intensity. It's like an epic 80s, like, dramatic, like, bittersweet love video to me in a sense, um, and I mean that with like the highest respect. All right, so she says, the spouse whom she chooses, the bride of Christ, is the lamb that was killed. If she is to enter into heavenly glory with him, she must allow herself to be fastened to his cross. The three vows are the nails. The more willingly she stretches herself out on the cross and endures the blows of the hammer, the more deeply she will experience the reality of her union with the, with the crucified. I mean, I'm really, I find that rhetoric and image really compelling, but also again, problematic. Is it healthy to to make suffering divine. Like this kind of, I mean, horrifying, painful, abusive suffering from others. I mean, Jesus being nailed to the cross was an abusive, horrific murder by other people, right? And this is what we were kind of like engaging in and endorsing as, you know, being worthwhile. I don't know, my, my doctoral program in feminist studies just, just give me that idea. And then she talks more about holy obedience. We just really don't have time to get through it. But just to end this, she says, the day on which God has unrestricted power over our hearts, we shall also have unrestricted power over his. I mean, I like the paradox of it. Why did I just sound Southern there? I am from Oklahoma. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a critique to be had, which is just traditional, you know, Christian theology. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening. I enjoyed this. I hope that you did too. If you have thoughts, if you have corrections, if you have any kind of feedback, let me know. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully one day I'll go through more of Edith Stein's works, but I just felt more comfortable talking about the theology since I come from a religious studies background. And I don't think that on the problem of empathy is easiest uh, to understand.
So, although there are lots of good YouTube videos out there summarizing it. So you might look at one of those. All right, thank you all. I will see you next time.